Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Bread Podcast. I am here with the founder of Fiat Dow, Max Figa, repeat guest. How are you doing today, Max? I'm good, David. Thanks for having me back. So we had planned this like a month ago, I think, uh, on the schedule. And obviously, a lot of stuff has happened in the last week or so. So you are the fortunate guest that gets to come on and talk about it uh first so how the last like two weeks been for you well luckily i feel like the DeFi space was always a bit more um untru- mistrusting untrusting of c5 platforms right so i didn't get caught up in ftx or BlockFi or genesis and you know at this rate maybe gemini tomorrow <laughs> um so i personally survived but yeah it's just really heartbreaking to see the stories you know people that lost it all or just even project treasuries right got got nailed by this stuff um so yeah personally a lot of it but i think the industry especially like whatever regulatory repercussions come with it i you know i don't think anyone's out of the woods regardless if they got a direct hit or not last time you were on we talked a good bit about like regulations uh that was i think like six months ago or so what what anything you've changed your mind on or i'm assuming you think things are probably probably worse now but uh where do you think we stand regulatory wise with crypto well in my uh you know unprofessional opinion (laughs) um i'm personally expecting probably some significant overreach in whatever you know regulatory fallout occurs from this um I think it's a really low-hanging fruit for regulators to go after, given what happened. You know, just from the fact that this was all offshore, it did impact Americans, even though Americans supposedly, you know, weren't using the platform. Um, and how it impacted American LP money in the funds that were using it offshore, right? So um I think even though it was a CFI issue, it probably does accelerate any of the regulatory concerns people may have had about DeFi. Um, I'm sure will be collateral damage in however this shakes out. Um, so I guess to like boil down my thoughts on that, I do think the regulatory response will probably be positive for um, traditional institutions getting into crypto. Right, like this offshore kind of standard, I don't think has a real future. But you know, while all this was shaking out, right, I like BNY Mellon and um, trying to think who else had a headline. Um, well, BNY Mellon's the one that comes to mind, right? But like, it's very clear to me that things like BTC and will be supported in like the traditional banking stack at some point or another. It's gonna take a while, but the tech is finally there, you know, like the enterprise grade stuff. Um, and I think if you follow like any of the Bank of International Settlements type stuff, that really nerdy, wonky side of yeah. banking regulate, regulation, like they're gearing up for like, you know, how does a bank carry Bitcoin on its balance sheet? So for them, you know, this is great, right? Like all the people that built uh, trading engines and marketplaces that supported crypto over the past 10 years, they're all blowing themselves up. And now the trap by vultures come in, you know, and basically inherit their work, uh, but in a regulated fashion. So that's like one half, right? And then the DeFi half, 
I think, uh, gets the shorter end of the stick. Because, yeah, obviously we're building things that are, you know, meant to deal with the issues that uh, came up in the whole FTX blow-up, right? Like this, this is like this basic concept of where are my deposits going? Who has my collateral? Like, who are the counterparties, right? Like, it's that type of stuff that resulted in these blow-ups and DeFi addresses all of that. But um, as unregulated financial platforms, it just does not strike me as being super conducive to, um, you know, getting the good side of any one regulator at this point. Yeah, it's it's really a bummer that, like, the U.S. I know FCX U.S. ended up getting affected in the end, but at least like those first few days, if you had money on FCX U.S., you were to get it out, and it's like, it really sucks that unfortunately the regulations are what protected people because they had to, the FTX US books were regulated completely differently than the FTX.com books. And uh, it gives them like tons of ammunition basically to like be like, see, look at this. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting situation because you could also argue that, well, all of this happened because you forced all of these exchanges to go offshore mm -hmm. because the US was so uh, unlenient on everything um it's it's really a bummer of course i don't think that most congress people who are going to be trying to shove regulation down are really going to take the other side they're going to say oh no we need to regulate the hell out of this uh i do agree with you though like i think i've said this a couple times on the podcast uh when you mentioned like other banks getting ready for custody and, and management uh arthur, arthur hayes wrote an article like probably back in March or April this year. And he he mentioned like, it was the one where I people have read his articles where he's like on a skiing trip or something with some finance people. And he said that, you know, he doesn't really like to talk about crypto with them, but like they started talking and they kind of all were like, oh yeah, we don't touch crypto. You know, like that's very dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And then he kind of was like, yeah, until you have products for it and you're making front money from it, right? And then you'll recommend it to all your clients. And they kind of, wink wink like yeah basically so that that's when i think we will shift tune like i know the the meme of institutions are coming has been around forever in crypto but i think it's actually happening and i think next cycle whatever you know whatever that means necessarily but uh next cycle we will have real institutions like from your side obviously with fiat dow you guys uh think about this a lot right like mm -hmm. how, how how do you kind of position yourself as a DeFi protocol, knowing that there's going to be a lot of changes in the next couple of years? Yeah. I mean, I think really taking that word to heart, you know, protocol is probably the most important thing you can do, right? Because today a DeFi protocol facilitates transactions between users who, you know, aren't KYC beyond just a geo block on a front end, right? Um, but that doesn't mean in the future it can't be the custody trading accounts of users at centralized exchanges, right? Um, I do think what's getting built in DeFi today can lay the groundwork for, um, you know, regulated financial institutions to use these systems very much like they use, you know, whether it's SWIFT for actual banking transactions. Or if it's something a bit less technical, like um, 
uh, oh, I'm blanking. But you know how there's like international standards for how to structure a swap agreement, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, like I do think that's where the future of DeFi protocols could lie. Um, at the same time, you know, maybe you make the argument for a splintering of financial systems where there's the U.S. regulated system and then there's the, you know, everything else system. Because, I mean, the um, even before crypto became, you know, the scale it is today, the kind of increasing amount of U.S. regulation on international finance was driving uh, like international banking relationships downwards, right? I think correspondent banking is like the key phrase for that type of assessment. Um, so that was a trend that was already underway, regardless of you know the future of stable coins, the future of DeFi, right? Could you give an example of that for people who don't know? Sure. Um, so basically, the U.S. has always had kind of a tradition of like pretty aggressive banking regulation, right? Bank Secrecy Act is from the 70s. Things accelerated with the, uh, kind of like the post 9-11, you know, stuff, um, post 2008 stuff. And so if you are an international bank, um, over the past two decades, the costs of taking on U.S. Uh, customers or interfacing with U.S. money have just gone up dramatically, like your compliance department costs, basically. Um, and that's happened at the same time as interest rates have been dropping. So if you're a bank in Indonesia, for example, you know, your revenues are coming down. Um, granted, I might get nerds sniped. I don't know if the Indonesian <laughs> interest rates have, have followed suit with everyone else. But right, the point still stands for, for most international banks. Their compliance costs have gone up, their revenues have come down. And so when we talk about correspondent banking, um, correspondent banks are basically the foreign banks that are approved to interface with American banks and then, you know, kind of facilitate regional stuff that goes in between there and the U.S., to, to put it very simply. And so the number of correspondent banking relationships has been declining, I think, since the mid-2000s after 2008 in particular, mm -hmm. um, because the compliance costs are just too high. And you see stories about that, especially with like um, US expats, right? Like if, I think if you try and go to Switzerland now and you try to open a bank account, they'll just tell you now because they don't right. want to deal with it. Yeah. Um, so that's a trend that's been happening before crypto and DeFi can definitely accelerate something like that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, I think the funniest thing for me as, as like, you know, someone who's working on DeFi projects is the day-to-day -day stuff is like very dry, right? Like we are writing code, posting it on GitHub, pulling it on Ethereum, and it's just like very anticlimactic, but it does elicit such a like vehement response from the powers that be because of, you know, the implications of it at scale. So there is that like level of disconnect. It sounds a little silly to be talking about parallel financial systems um, when you know DeFi hasn't scaled beyond facilitating leverage for crypto traders at this point. Um, but that's also one way things can play out, right? So I'm I'm ambivalent. I personally just kind of like have this mantra of you know you build in good faith. Um, you don't try and hide anything. 
And there's so much path dependence in all of this that you just have to kind of roll with, you know, what blows up where and how things generally go. And I think that's what ends up deciding the future of DeFi, right? In, in a nutshell, nothing's a given. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you that there will be probably like a outside U.S. and inside U.S. Uh, system. My question would be, do you think U.S. citizens will be able to access the outside at all? I think that comes down to a, a project by project basis, right? Like if you are a non-U.S. citizen who's building a DeFi protocol and you do it anonymously and you know, maybe in a couple of years, we really have the tools for that code to be hosted in a censorship resistant manner and all that jazz, then, you know, U.S. citizens would still find ways to access those platforms. I don't see us rolling out a great firewall uh, anytime soon um, here in the U.S. So I, I don't think it's something you can fight, right? Like it's, it's um, un unless we were talking about like, government intervention in the validator set, you know, when it comes to Ethereum. Uh, I just think it's a losing battle and you're already starting to see, um, you know, like what kind of got missed in the whole FTX blow up is right, like the um, the congressional races uh, that, that have now concluded over the past week, right? And there's nothing super, um, super productive of a gridlocked Congress, right? Like I mean, it's going to be a lame duck session for the next two years, but you're already starting to see more and more politicians on both sides of the aisle, um, you know, have the crypto talking points. I think the new uh, House House majority leader, um, or sorry, the whip of the House, like pro-crypto. Um, and so I, you know, I think there will be enough people that understand the upside of leaning into this tech is is greater um, than trying to squash it when we really can. And then the last bit I would add is that I even saw JP Morgan in an internal note make the point that, right, yeah, the FTX blow up is a centralized finance issue. It's not a DeFi issue. So they're saying that. That was nice that they said that, you know, because everybody yeah. was just conflating everything together, which is always the most frustrating thing whenever something happens on the centralized side that it's like, hey, you know, Aave, uh, you know, Uniswap, all these protocols are working just fine. We don't have any issues over there. So it's always frustrating when people lump everything together. But uh, let me let me ask you this um, before this current Sam wave of collapse and fraud happened. He was uh, in the news for the Eric Voorhees debate. I'm not sure if you saw that. Um, I, did, I gave yeah. my commentary on it. And I actually, unfortunately, it doesn't look great now because, you know, uh, hindsight. But I kind of took Sam's side on it in that, uh, you know, Eric was saying, oh, we should just like basically have idealist stance and say, screw the regulators and sam was like that's not how this works you either go to them with a compromise or they are going to decide for you and i kind of chose i kind of sided with sam on that one and i think he's right despite you know the the unfortunate thing that he was fraudulent afterwards but where do you stand on that like and and the, sorry the other thing also was on the one of the core arguments was like you mentioned that at the block level we should absolutely fight censorship as much as possible 
But mm. on the front end, if you're a protocol that's offering different products that you probably should have to get some type of license or something like that, um, at least in the US, do you think that is like a reasonable compromise? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things here. Um, so to answer like the concrete part of that, um, as someone who has, not for this current project, but for a previous work I've been involved in, like, you know, had those regulatory conversations, I think my biggest issue to date is that the stance Sam is pushing in the current regulatory environment is, is very much a red herring. Um, you can go in and talk to regulators and, you know, have your meetings, have your presentations. Um, but the reality is there, there is not like an actual workable framework, at least in the US, for kind of seeing it through with real action, right? Like this idea that, oh, just come and talk to us, register your project, and then you'll be good to go, mm -hmm. does not work. Um, and I think it's very intentional, but it does not work. Uh, most US financial regulation over the past 30 years has worked to get rid of this concept of bearer assets. Right, this idea that just holding something like a stock certificate can entitle you to, um, you know, benefiting uh, from it without being registered in a in a brokerage or something like that. And crypto fundamentally represents digital bearer assets. So I don't, I really don't think they want to make it work. Um, whereas other jurisdictions like um, uh, Switzerland has FINMA. Um, and they actually have ways for you to register tokens there, right? So that's what kind of makes me side a bit more with Eric, because I understand that there really is no actual mechanism by which you can, you know, really uh, uh, conform to regulators today. Like it really is like this gray area that is, you know, intentionally gray. And it comes from the fact that they like to all tell us to take a hike at the end of the day, right? Like, it's just the legal system we have in the US prevents them from outright <laughs> saying that. Um, but in a more idealistic world, I definitely think, like, if you locked up, you know, or sorry, not locked up, if you put people together for six months in a room, you know, the, the people that are already doing the policy and advocacy work in DC, for crypto, we could totally come up with like a light registration framework, right? Where it's disclosing um, insider holdings and you know having regular financial statement reporting, just stuff like that. And you know, if your project does it, then regulated hedge funds and regulated asset managers can hold your assets, use your protocol, etc. Right? Like that can easily be implemented if there is actual political will, in my opinion. And so that's kind of why like, I, I think the argument is definitely, um, the way they had their debate was like very much, uh, what's the word, like a barbell, right? Like Eric's a bit too idealist, Yeah. Sam was too statist, but the future, I think like a workable future does exist between the two. Yes. Yeah, I, 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 that, that's generally, I think I actually said like in the podcast, I said, uh, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Um, mm -hmm. so I would agree with you on that. Like, like, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I have not like read the whole DCCPA and all that stuff. So I don't know all the nuances of the bill and everything. Um, like, okay. You kind of alluded to this a little bit. If I were to, uh, make you the dictator, well, not dictator, but the, uh, 
just put you in charge of crypto regulation and I say you form it however you see fit. Like, what do you think is best? Should we create? I think one of the problems, too, and I don't know if this is the best solution, but I think it'd be better would be having a completely separate commission instead of having like SEC or CFTC rules applied to crypto, having like a crypto commission. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, if you were like in charge, you get to form the whole thing. What, what, what would your ideal framework look like? Again, I'm not a lawyer, but <laughs> I think the the primary constraint that I see at this point in time is the fact that so much of financial regulation, both in the U.S. and outside, presumes the existence of an intermediary uh, for these types of transactions, right? Like, I think you saw that with um, like the Uki DAO CFTC stuff, right? What they really honed in on was the fact that the Uki protocol or BZX, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, was offering leverage, like so many apps in DeFi do, right? Like it's not a good fact pattern for any of us, um, but was not registered as a, a proper broker for doing so. I, I don't know what the actual terminology there would be. Um, and so to your point, right? Like, do we need a new agency? I would say, while you could make crypto conform into existing ones, right? Like, I think we would all be better off if some of these DeFi governance tokens were securities and had cash flow, you know, return to people and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But like the fact that we can just transact these without intermediaries and can collateralize them where we want, you know, for more, more fun, um, just throws a wrench into making any of that stuff like feasible. Because the like the issue for the SEC or the CFTC is you know, they finally come up with like crypto frameworks. And then now every traditional company realizes those frameworks are a bit more lenient than what they've been having to do for their own shares, right? And now you just like stir up a $27 trillion capital market here in the US with regulatory uncertainty, right? Like, I think that's the primary reason we have not seen any meaningful, um, you know, guidelines or frameworks or registration processes. And so kind of with that in mind, I do think it would be get um, the need for a new agency, but you know, that agency can't just throw out what the other agencies have been doing in, in their respective spheres. So that's why I see it very much being something that's between a rock and a hard place. Um, and I mean, I personally wish there were a better answer, but like I, I don't know if the U.S. is ready to lead on this as, as a result. Right? Like even the EU is starting to have better stablecoin legislation and regulation than than the U.S. is, which is just like totally opposite of um, you know general tech trends over the past twenty years. Right, the EU has been kind of lagging and ineffective on, on that front. So, yeah. <laughs> do you think that like? Like, okay, smart contracts, like, because you mentioned, like, so much is based on intermediaries. And one of the reasons, like, especially after 2008, right, like they increased the regulations on hedge funds as far as disclosures and all these things because mm -hmm. of Bernie Madoff type people, right? You can't just not say anything about what you hold. And I think that's reasonable. I think if you're holding other people's money that you probably should have a certain level of like transparency. Um, and obviously protocols have that through 
on-chain uh, transparency. But uh, I think a tricky part, like you mentioned, is like when you put money in a smart contract, is that custody? I don't think it is, but I think regulators could certainly make an argument that it is, right? Because you could say, well, you know, if you have a non-founder, because it's happened, right? Non-founders will will steal money out of smart contracts, right? And it's like, what's the recourse for that? Is that something that would ever really be allowed? Like, I let's, let's start with one question first, just smart contracts. Do you think that will end up being seen as a form of custody or not? I think there's two ways you could go about it. I think if we did have like a industry developed framework for registering crypto projects at like a regulatory level, I do think you could implement checks for making sure that, you know, if a project registers, they have to make certain commitments around uh, emergency powers over a smart contract or backdoors in a smart contract, right? Like that's, I mean, definitely doable, right? You can never say a smart contract is not hackable, but like there, there are certain checks and checks you can implement to make sure you know people can't move deposited assets. And I, I mean, I do think there's precedent for that, right? Like if you work in um, professional services, right? You see these like SOC one, SOC two type of audit tests. Um, there's that for both finance and for cybersecurity, uh, technical, like enterprise tech implementations, right? So I, I do think there is a path forward on that where we don't necessarily have to make a legal opinion on whether smart contracts constitute custody. I think you could just implement specific standards for smart contracts. Um, and then, you know, if you tell um, regulated asset managers that they can only interact with smart contracts that are registered, then liquidity, you know, becomes the deciding factor at the end of the day. Liquidity will not go to unregistered smart contracts and solves your problem, right? Um, flip side would be um, similar to those conversations around like wrapping DAOs and legal entities, which I am not a fan of personally, but you could make the argument that maybe a smart contract has to be associated with a legal entity or something like that for it to be registered. And that could, you know, Input, uh, introduce a more fiduciary relationship um, between the deployer and the contract. And again, right, like if that's the prerequisite for getting a specific license or a specific credit rating, maybe Moody's is doing this in a decade, right? Then liquidity solves your problems because liquidity will not be going to unregistered um, smart contracts in that, in that event. So I, I think there's like a couple ways to think about it. And I, I don't think it will require necessarily like 80 year olds to make legislation <laughs> that, that defines this type of stuff, right? Like uh, um, because there just are these precedents in both uh, financial services and enterprise tech, you know, where we have implemented um, standardized checks uh, and tests for, kind of uh, assessing the robustness uh, of a given architecture, right? Yeah, that would be, yeah, that's that's interesting. I didn't know about, I know what you're talking about with SOC. I'm not super familiar with how that works, but I get what you're saying with having a certain checklist, essentially, of like, if it doesn't meet the standard US uh, institutions or whoever are not allowed to invest in it, rather than, like you said, making it, uh, uh, considering it custody at a legal level. Um, on the non-founder part, 
I, I go back and forth on this because the problem is it's like, I mean, Sam wasn't an on, you know, like, and he was committing mass fraud. Does, does the Anon founder thing, that's like a major trope that non-crypto people definitely have a target on, right? And uh, obviously you're, you're a protocol founder and you're not Anon. Uh, where do you think it ends? Do you think Anon founders will ever be a thing or not in the U.S.? Um, I mean, I personally wish I had been Anon to begin with. I think the the upsides of being doxxed in today's, you know, like today's crypto landscape are, are relatively limited. Like, I do think Anon founders can figure out funding and, you know, get people to work for them. It's, you know, we... You see that with uh, like you're in finance, right? Obviously, Andre was doxxed, but most of the most of the remaining team is not. And that not impeded them in the slightest, right? Um, I guess I, I don't make any like moral kind of decisions about that, right? Like I don't trust anyone more or less whether they're in on or not, just because. Like you said, I think every single major blow up this year came from docs, <laughs> founders, and, right. and fund managers, right? So, um, but again, right, if we go back to this idea that the future is some form of registration, even if it's light, light-handed registration, um, I do think one of the prerequisites will be, you know, having names and addresses for lawsuits to get sent to. Like, that's just how these things work. Maybe you can get around it. Maybe, you know, non-founders have to put up bonds uh, that can be sued against. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I think that is, that may have precedent in other um, career paths, but right, like at the end of the day, you know, no one can stop you from deploying that contract, right? And so it becomes more of a spectrum in my mind. It's like, you know, what is the glass ceiling for non-founders versus like, this is a binary thing. Yeah, I don't think the Anon founder will ever go away. It's more like, I think, you know, if we're fast forwarding five, 10 years from now, I think it's very unlikely that you'll ever see a major institution working with an Anon founder. I think it's just probably not very feasible. You know, like when we talk about if a BNY Mellon or Fidelity or whoever is going to like have some type of product. I highly doubt that they're going to be able to pull off working with an Anon founder project, right? They're only going to work with Docs founders. Right or wrong, I think that's probably where it ends up. But yeah, I agree. Like, I used to be, lean a little more towards, um, like, once you get to a certain level, like, if you're just starting a project and it's small and whatever, I don't think you need to be doxxed. For me, it's more like, okay, if you're getting into the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of assets, mm -hmm probably should be docs. Now, in that case, often in all reality, I think a lot of these people you you can find out who they are. Uh it's it gets harder and harder at the, at those levels. But um like I don't see a world where Fidelity is going to like put a billion dollars in a protocol within a non-founder. I just think that's probably not going to happen. Um Right. And I mean there's also the reality too that you know there's there's found like sure there may be founders, but the reality is like a lot of these projects are more so the sum of their parts in terms of like who's contributing. Yeah. And so if you have three names and three addresses, but 30 Anon contributors, right? Like that's not necessarily going to be a problem, right? I mean, yeah. frankly, like think about all of the software that's, or all the open source software that's getting used you know, across 
tech and finance today, finance less so, but you know, like Linux is used by <laughs> right so many people or so many uh, businesses. And you know, you don't have an expectation of knowing who the maintainers are necessarily, right? So right. I, I think it, it, there's definitely a path forward. Um, I, I don't think we have to be in some like dystopic, like everyone has to have a license type future. But you know, someone someone's head has to be on a chopping block. Um, right. That's yeah. where it gets tricky, right? Because I agree, you don't, you probably don't need to have every single person in an organization. But if you have 30 people, and three of them are the doxed faces, and the, the rest aren't, and then some of the anon people do something that screws over the protocol, then right. you know, that sucks if you're the doxed person that has to uh, put in the chopping block for that. So yeah, uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's an easy answer, like every, any, everything uh, difficult in life. Uh, I, I, I just, I really, I really hope that regulators aren't going to be so, so aggressive. Um, I was, I, I'll be honest. I was more optimistic before this FTX stuff happened. Now I'm, I am less optimistic. I, I haven't like thought enough about what I think is going to happen, but, um, anyways, let's, let's move on from the regulation talk. Uh, it's good to get your insight on that. Um, as far as like general markets, not, not not giving any financial advice, anything like that. How do you see things right now? Like, um, we'll start with just like ETH itself, since you're a, you're a DeFi founder. Like, do you think mm -hmm. ETH is uh, reasonably close to the bottom here, or do you think we have a lot more to go? Um, I think the one outstanding thing for me is just knowing where the contagion stops. I, I think that's most people's main concern at the moment, right? Like, I think. I don't know, people are murmuring about jump, right? Because they've been quiet for the past few weeks and now Genesis having gone under, right? Um, I think Silvergate is more on the Bitcoin side, but that's another like shoe to drop potentially. Um, but the fact that we did, you know, finally go uh, negative for, for a hot second on ETH emissions since, since the merge during all the FTX volatility is just like such a, I don't know, it's such a clear narrative for how the next cycle can start, in my opinion, right? Like we went through 2018 and we went through 2019 because, you know, there's millions of dollars of ETH getting dumped every day from, from miners at the time. And it's just a very different asset now, right? Um, obviously staking rewards being yields, you know, I, I don't think that holds up under too much scrutiny, but the MEV is real. The lack of uh, net new emissions sometimes is real. Um, and I think you can, like that, that JP Morgan comment we referenced earlier here on the call, right? Like, I think that's them kind of tipping their hand a little bit. Uh, I, I would assume ETH is going to be like the institutional grade asset of choice. Yeah. Um, going forward, especially just if the maybe ESG takes a back seat given like the whole, you know, natural resources. Uh, uh, what's shortage <laughs> shortage shortage that we're all going through right so maybe but even if that's the case right and maybe people are willing to put ESG aside Bitcoin mining is still a massive electrical burden on a regional level right and so I, I just find it hard to come up with like really great Bitcoin bull cases obviously like I'm not going to call it dead I'm sure it will continue chugging along and 
there will always be another Michael Saylor. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm perfectly content just, you know, accumulating ETH and seeing, um, seeing it get recognized as like this neutral financial settlements layer um, going forward. Oh, you know, censorship is still like a big concern for me, but it's, you know, you're not going to get any less censorship on another chain, right? So, yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about this too with the regulation side. I think there's like now, I think there's a huge advantage to have already been an established chain. Like, I think it's going to get increasingly harder to try to launch. Like, if you're trying to be a Ethereum competitor launching today, it's going to be way, way harder. Uh, I think the, the lindiness factor, right? <laughs> like might, like might be a big, big deal. Um, do you think, yeah, I mean, I, yeah go ahead. I, sorry, I was just going to say, I strongly agree with that. Like one of the things that make me so bearish on things like Solana and, you know, Cosmos DAP chains, for example, despite super vibrant building communities happening there is like people will forget that like the real advantage of ETH is just, like it's a bookie that doesn't need a gang protecting it. I, I've been watching a lot of Peaky Blinders lately, so kind of <laughs> uh, has been informing that view, right? But it's like it managed to scale its validator set to the point where it's distributed enough, um, and everyone validating transactions has a uh, plausible deniability, right? Like you know, if you're validating transactions for the BYDX chain. Like no way in the hell are you going to be able to say, "Oh, I'm not, you know, a financial money transmitter or whatever the you know relevant like regulation would be in that case." Or, you know, I'm not a derivatives settler. Uh, it just like does not hold up at all. Um, or something like Solana, right, where the the technical demands of running um, a validator are just so immense, right? You're never going to be able to do that like in a sufficiently decentralized way. Um, and so I think that's what's really getting lost in the narratives these days, um, especially with like the whole DAP chain uh, kind of resurgence, uh, at least from the uh, thought leaders at the moment. Yeah, and if, if, I, if I'm defending Bitcoin, since we've mentioned that, I think that's the biggest advantage Bitcoin has, right? It's just, it's the most Lindy coin. It does have a true non-founder that, Hopefully, will never be discovered. I don't think it will be, um, or at least officially. You know, we can speculate, but uh, and that it's like its own thing. I think ETH going proof of stake finally is actually good for Bitcoin long term. Whether the flipping happens or not, I don't know. Um, I lean towards yes, but I wouldn't like bet my life on it. Um, but I think Bitcoin being its own thing and staying proof of work and just being this Lindy, like digital gold type thing that you're not going to be able to create another Bitcoin, right? Like that, I think is pretty clear. That will never happen again. Um, so that's like what it has going for it. And I think that ETH and Bitcoin being the dominant chains is probably pretty established at this point. Like I would see, a, I, I agree with you. I think it's like the idea of someone flipping ETH I think is extremely unlikely uh, in terms of like trying to be another settlement layer for dApps and all of this. I'm not saying that like, I, I'm still like, as far as from a pure investing betting standpoint, like I, this morning I actually bought some Solana cause it was like $13. Sure, I was like, yeah. 
I was like 13 bucks, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll punt on Solana here, you know, but that mm -hmm. doesn't, I still put like the odds of them never reaching new all-time highs at like, I would say greater than 50% at this point. Right. Especially obviously with Sam's full involvement, but it's crypto. So you never know. Um, right. And just because but, things can't like become an Ethereum competitor doesn't mean they can't become an Ethereum roll up. Yeah. Or an Ethereum side chain, you know, in some way or form, right? And find success that way. But to your point, right, like how do you value that, especially when block space is pretty plentiful these days? Like, uh, you know, I don't think anyone has right. really good answers uh, to that just yet. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, even Anatoly himself has talked about like, there's definitely a world where Solana just becomes an L2 for ETH, right? Because they're just like mm -hmm. this rapid ex uh, uh, execution layer. And yeah, there'll be more centralized than other people. But for the types of applications, like he's mentioned, it's a little cliche, but like like kind of the uh, decentralized NASDAQ or pseudo decentralized NASDAQ type thing. Like, I think mm -hmm. that's reasonable. And that's that's a path that I think if they want to succeed, they should probably push more to. Now, of course, with Serum, uh, getting screwed and all this. It's got to, they're in a tough spot. They're in a tough spot. I feel bad for the people in the Solana community. I know a lot of those guys, but uh, anyways, um, on ETH, what, uh, what, like, uh, we're talking again, not financial advice, but are there any DeFi protocol tokens that you like here at all? Um, <laughs> I know it's tough. They're, they've been down only for a long time, but yeah, are there any uh... that you think have a chance? I, I think we as an industry have to kind of recalibrate how we use our tokens and treat our tokens first, to, to be quite honest. Um, like, I think I'd be comfortable like stating which projects I think have like good futures ahead of them, right? Like I think the work being done over at Aave has been like lights out uh, for quite some time now and their expansion to like social networking with Lens as well. like. I think really kind of highlights that they're thinking about things well. Um, and also, you know, I think the real world asset space is the ultimate end game for DeFi liquidity and projects at Central Future are really pushing the needle on that. And so I'm, I'm bullish on DeFi projects, but I do recognize like we very much have been building with both arms behind our back both in terms of the product and both in terms of like the tokens associated with these projects. Um, certain jurisdictions do get a bit more leeway, right? Like I think Maple gives uh, token revenue back or gives protocol revenue back to token holders. Um, but everyone else has kind of had to like look the other way on that type of stuff. So there's that element. Um, and then when it comes to what these DeFi protocols are actually doing, right? Like you know, I think people, I mean, I even saw a tweet today from someone at Paradigm talking about how like DeFi sucks. And it's like, well, yeah, but like if I wanted to launch home mortgages on the blockchain tomorrow, right, <laughs> I'd have my door kicked in within a week, right? Like it's just, right. you're not playing on a level playing field. So, yeah. Let me tell you, <laughs> you know, when you do so much crypto, you like, it's, you forget how slow tradfi is like i i just oh. yesterday i had some money on a traditional like stock brokerage and i want to buy more crypto so i said okay i'm gonna move it and so i sold a couple things and it's like oh 
you sold that, but you're not allowed to actually withdraw for three days. And then once you withdraw, it's got to go to your bank. That's going to take another couple of days. And then I need to move it over to who I was using FTX US before for my on on off ramp. So I'm going to have to maybe yeah. go to Coinbase or something now. Uh, but like, then it's going to, it's like, okay, so I wanted to just like sell some assets here and buy them here. And it's going to take me at least a week to make that happen. Like we forget how mm. I, I'm used to just like, Oh, cool. I want to buy something on Polygon. Let me just bridge over real quick. Okay. Two minutes later, done. You know, that is exactly. like the speed we, we, we really underestimate, I think. And, and I agree, like, uh, on the real world asset thing, like it's, it's, it's not DeFi founders fault. You know, it's like, it's just like an impossible problem right, right. now. Um, by the way, you mentioned Maple side note. I, I, one thing that made me bullish a little more on them recently was I saw that a few weeks before all this, uh, FTX Alameda stuff happened, they, uh, stopped lending to Alameda because they had like red flags and they said, we don't want to lend to Alameda anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you caught that. That was, was like, okay, okay. Good for, good for Maple. Um, right. speaking of rural assets, what do you think about what maker is doing right now? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's a tricky situation. <laughs> um, I, I've seen, so I, I guess for the listeners who don't know, right, like there's currently a $200 million um, real world asset proposal going through uh, MakerDAO governance. And, you know, one of the main criticisms there has been that pricing of that credit facility is pretty whack. I think it's like 4% uh, for the credit, you know, like we're talking like that's like government yield, right? Sovereign sovereign right. debt yield. Um, and so, you know, my my bias view, right? Like as someone who is building out a separate stablecoin protocol, who is looking to get into like credit markets as well with our our V2, is like people have to be able to differentiate between a protocol and the implementation of that protocol, right? Like MakerDAO is, and the Maker system is a protocol for you know, creating a stable coin, but the MakerDAO implementation is, has its own politics. It has its own decision makers. Um, and, you know, comparing that to traditional financial institutions, it, it doesn't work, right? Like you, like imagine if a bank had to have forum conversations for every, financing decision you have to make, right? Like it just is not at all scalable, despite being an internet native system. And then now you have all these concerns about like the quality of due diligence being done on these proposals, right? Cause like that one's going through centrifuge as well, right? So like, I'm a fan of all the players involved there, but like the execution of how it's going down is uh, frankly a bit questionable, right? And so I think what we're missing in DeFi, well, not missing. I think Maple is is along is on the right track here, but like having protocols for marketplaces, I think is far more important than having protocols for, you know, specific instantiations, right? Same with Aave, right? Like you onboard one piece of shit collateral, and now the whole system is like teetering. Yeah. Whereas in the real world, if a bank makes a few bad loans, right, it, it doesn't automatically blow up, right? Like that's built into everything. And so that's kind of like my hope, you know, when it comes to like the future of DeFi is that everyone kind of like does a little bit of self-reflection and maybe 
looks to take a more marketplace-based approach, like you know, like how Maple does with its credit delegates, right? Like I think the example you cited it was like orthogonal trading that I really like with the yeah. signal go arms, right? Like they did a good job there. Maybe maybe there had been another credit delegate who didn't do that, right? Mm -hmm. And they would have blown up this past week, but Maple would be fine, right? Um, so I think that's kind of my view on DeFi at the moment. It's like we need to get more to those types of systems, which are actual protocols that allow for, you know, kind of robust marketplaces to form and that do allow for um, credit failures, that do allow for misjudgment of risk. Because today, we what we've really just accomplished are, you know, bring DeFi liquidity in, but still have key man risk in who is deciding what gets to be collateral because it all has to be a unitronch uh you know system right like make your like one bad piece of collateral it's not great yeah how, how do you feel about like obviously i i think one thing that DeFi needs to be a little more open to is learning some of the lessons from tradfi as much as we might want to be our own thing like one thing that kind of baffles me like when you see like mango markets type thing with the exploit like you're discussing or yeah you could just you know one bad piece of collateral on ave you could take it down theoretically like there's a reason why TradFi has like stop gaps and circuit breakers and things like this. Um, and I know that it's mm -hmm. like the pure decentralization is you don't want to have those things. But I think you're not really affecting any normal person when you're saying if someone's trying to borrow more than $20 million, they need to have like extra layers through it. I don't think that's like an unreasonable thing to say. Right. I, do you think we're going to start seeing a lot more of that in, in DeFi? I mean, I think we have to. Like there's yeah. no other way we scale. Um, I think you know, seeing things like that mango markets uh, exploit that happen, I think it speaks more to the fact that so much of this got built in 2018, 2019, when we didn't have the same degree of um, how do I put it? Like when Compound was building its first lending market, it had to assume it was existing in a vacuum, right? Like this has to be a completely self-sufficient thing. And then, you know, time went on and DeFi popped up on Solana. So people, you know, started building Solana versions of those earlier Ethereum platforms. And now we're in 2022, where, you know, you combine this like toxic cocktail of people not caring because it's a bear market, right? Like no one's like, act, few people, sorry, few people are actively monitoring like the status of collateral that got added to Avier Compound two and a half years ago um, until someone like rings the bell, right? Like um, Kirk over at Wolf Protocol, like rang the bell for a few governance tokens that were listed on Compound. Um, someone just did it for Mana on uh, Aave, right? And so they're finally like cleaning that stuff out now, or sorry, not cleaning it up, but you know, readjusting parameters <laughs> and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, like the and, other day when uh, Alameda collapsed, they basically run Ren and, you know, all of these, pro lots yeah. of protocols use Ren. And I was looking around, like even like Ave had a Ren file coin market. And I was like, they should probably get rid of this, you know? I mean, yeah. and you saw on, on Solana, right? What was it? Solet, uh, BTC and uh, ETH Solana, yeah. it just basically went to zero uh, because right. it was like, 
they had that it was supposedly backed one to one by Alameda assets. And then once Alameda is like going under, people are like, mm-hmm. okay, well, now the so BTC is trading at like a thousand bucks or something. Right. And that's that's a disaster. You know, that's that's how these things happen. Um, yeah, sorry, keep going. No, I was just gonna, I mean, I, I think that's a good cap to it, right? Like for these protocols to really scale, like not only do we have to have um you know, a bit more sophistication on how we think of collateral, which is already happening, right? Like, not, like there's a lot of great work on that. And I'm sure we'll be able to like implement like different protocol features that can express that a bit better. But like also the time of time involved in reassessing collateral has to get a lot better, right? Like you can't have a forum post asking for the interest rate to change on a moment's notice, right? Like that kind of stuff has to be programmatic, in my opinion. Like, in, like otherwise, you just open yourself up to like being a very bad bank at the end of the day, like a poor alternative to a bank, and that's ultimately what we're not trying to be, right? Um, so yeah, lessons were definitely learned. I think over the past few months on on understanding collateral. Yeah, I agree. I I will say though on the. Uh, on the positive side, I think the market is very good at reacting to things. I think that's one thing that crypto has shown is that it's extremely resilient and we tend to learn. Maybe I'm not saying we don't make repeat mistakes, but we definitely learn a lot of lessons. Um, let's pivot a little bit to what you guys are working on at Fiat Dow. You had a new launch recently that unfortunately went under the radar a little just because yeah. of uh, <laughs> everything going on. But you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so for the folks who aren't familiar, uh, Fiat V1 was basically uh, a maker fork with some extensions, specifically for accepting fixed income assets. So your USDC lockup for six months will take that as collateral, give you high LTV, and actively reassess the risk of that collateral as it converges upon its maturity. Uh, now we launched that in April, so yields collapsed not able to really monetize any liquidity. Um, and so we've kind of just been heads down building. And a week and a half ago, we announced basically our plans for Fiat V2. Fiat V2 is a technical upgrade, but it's a, a very significant narrative pivot on our end. Because with Fiat V1, we said fixed income assets only. There's like six projects that you can integrate with that. Um, but because we were working on illiquid collateral and now volatile illiquid collateral, which is kind of what led to the Fiat V2 genesis, basically, um, we realized that what we had been building is actually conducive to any lending arrangement you can think of. And so our goal with the Fiat V2 is, you know, very, like, very, very heavy caveat on this, but like a permissionless stable point. Um, and the way we're going about that is basically rethinking our protocol as a credit marketplace. And so the very simple TLDR, um, I'm you know working on content that boils down the white paper a bit more, but is that you can have a permission list of assets that are deemed high quality collateral, so stable coins, ETH, interest bearing positions, and either right. Um, and actually use those permissioned assets to vouch uh, for collateral vaults uh, that were deployed by anyone. 
And so the idea is kind of similar to how liquidity, you know, allows you to deposit LUSD and liquidate positions as they get, you know, uh, as they violate uh, collateral requirements. Mm -hmm. Here we're saying you don't even have to mint the stablecoin. We'll value your deposit in ETH. You can choose which um, borrowing vaults this is the term we use. You want to underwrite, um, and now your fiat credit is being used to actually liquidate positions uh, automatically. Um, that's kind of like the first wave of defense. And so there's a lot to unpack there. I think the most important things to highlight with it are um, not only does it allow for like uh, fiat to be minted against fixed income assets like we've been working on, but you could even imagine uh, unsecured credit lines. Uh, similar to like what Maple has been facilitating, um, where you know if people delegate a thousand dollars to who's left standing, uh, Wintermute, <laughs> right? Then uh, Wintermute can have a thousand fiat uh, credit line and mint that, and if they don't repay based off of you know whatever the specifications are for default, okay, then we take the people who vouched for Wintermute, we take their good collateral because it's USDC, it's it's whatever. Um, so that's what excites me the most. I think there's a ton that can be built on top of that structure. Um, and yeah, I think it makes sense in terms of what we were talking about earlier, where you want to build something that can withstand failures and can have like a market-driven approach to interest rates, debt ceilings, and those types of parameters. If uh, for the underwriters, what I mean, I know you can't estimate this exactly, but like what roughly yield do you think people would be able to generate on like an example like that, like a winter muter, someone pretty established that wouldn't consider to be that risky, though who knows these days, but yeah. So, I mean, I think this is where it gets fun, right? Because let's take a winter mute example, right? Um, winter mute has been borrowing on Maple, I'm pretty sure unsecured. Like they haven't been putting up collateral uh, at least recently. And they've been paying 12%, right? But you have to keep in mind that that 12% uh, takes into a number of factors, right? It takes into account the risk of Wintermute not repaying, but it also is the risk of Maple not attracting enough USDC to lend to Wintermute in the first place, right? Like you have to bring people through the door. And they do that in part with Maple token emissions as well. And so now, right, with the fiat system, right, if I can put up state ETH, if I can put up Frax, Convex, you know, blah, 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 right, <laughs> whatever the derivative is as a reserve asset, then the amount of yield I, you know, would request of Wintermute before delegating to them, I do think it goes lower, right? Like your, your opportunity cost looks different. And so that's the primary thesis for why a stable coin and a credit marketplace go together so well, right? Um, you don't have to pay for people to bring in USDC to the platform. You may have to pay for that stable coin of yours to have liquidity. You know, that's a whole other conversation. But at scale, all else being equal, like it's always going to be cheaper to have your own money, right? It's kind of like the, the banking thesis in a nutshell. Um, so there's that element, right? Um, the other element here is that for other assets, like actual assets, um, I think fixed income in particular is intriguing because there you don't need a ton 
of uh, backup uh, liquidation support. All right, so like if you have locked up USDC for six months, um, we wouldn't require like a one-to-one -one ratio of credit delegated to, to mint against that. It would, I think, look a lot similar to how, you know, banking regulations try to go for 10 to 20% liquidity buffers. Mm -hmm. So if a hundred fiat delegated to a fixed income asset allow people to mint a thousand fiat against a thousand dollars worth of that fixed income asset, now you're passing on 10x leverage yield. So the interest rate can be very low for that person to mint fiat against um, their fixed income asset, but it comes through as like a still competitive yield, you know, to the underwriters. 40 basis points becomes, you know, four, 400 basis points uh, in that example. So, yeah. And would you, like we were talking before about managing risk, like, are you... How are you like segregating <clears throat> risk between these different markets so that if one goes bad, it doesn't affect everything else? Right. So there's there's two sides to that, right? There's reserve asset failure and there's borrowing vault failure. Um, I think on the borrowing vault side, right, this is the unpermissioned side of the house. Um, whenever one of those things gets deployed, there would be a one-to-one -one limit enforced. So like if you, you know, launch David coin as a scam and tried to run the protocol, you don't need to run. It's a very about. legitimate project. Okay. David coin, <laughs> it's got good prospects. All right. Yeah, that's fair. I, everything looks like a red pull on, on coin gecko these days. Right. <laughs> but, you know, just the, like long tail assets, whatever it may be. And um, the ability to go above hundred percent utilization of that delegated credit, um, that then becomes a, a governance question. So basically those people that are underwriting, they're the first line of defense. Second line of defense would be your, your generic collateral auction, right? Like how Maker does it, how Audi does it, right? Like those kind of usual mechanisms. Um, and then fallbacks actually become, you know, protocol issuing debt to cover like it, protocol issuing bonds to cover bad debts and, and so on right so in that sense what we're introducing is just another level of collateral liquidation mechanisms or mechanism um and again that's that's not going to be perfect right like the parameterization of the system will be very important will be very important that you know, random long tail things don't represent 10% of outstanding collateral backing supply, right? Like that's that's reality in my opinion. It's not ever going to be something totally autonomous. Um, but I think that's okay, right? Like keep like I my my opinion is, you know, even if you can only get 10% LTV against your long tail collateral, that's better than nothing. There's there's a market for it. Um and like we're building this to be scalable such that it doesn't cost the protocol anything to onboard hundreds of different assets, even if we're talking about like a million TBL here, a million TBL there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and on the reserve asset side, right? Like if, you know, you onboard some interest bearing position and Lido goes belly up or whatever it may be, um, there are ways to attract more capital to basically patch those holes. It's a bit different because fiat never got minted against those positions. You're only kind of 
shoring up the commitments they had, like the insurance fund, basically, is, is what we're talking about there. Um, so we have like a few modules in place for that as well. So nothing's ever going to be airtight, um, but we do think the system is a bit more robust and is a bit more less dependent on manual intervention for those types of uh, triage scenarios because you have this enlisted capital that is willing and able to liquidate on demand as, as needed, you know, by virtue of underwriting. Do you guys do uh, partial or like full liquidations? Well, like we're say, still, yeah. Like say Wintermute, I'm not I'm not trying to say anything bad about Wintermute. Wintermute's good, but I was just saying as the theoretical, like say they have like, like a monthly payment that they have to, or whatever, mm -hmm. how it works, right? A monthly payment, and they miss that monthly payment. Are you doing a full liquidation or only a little bit of it? So that, that's a good point, right? Like, I think the, the main answer for that is basically we would not have a canonical implementation for a borrowing vault. I think for the whatever example, we would have something like you just laid out where default is defined by, you know, you didn't make your minimum credit card payment, right? Like that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that case, it becomes just a matter of repaying what you, maybe your missed payments, right? Like that, that type of concept, I think. Um, but ultimately, right, like the, the main fallback there would just be to cancel the borrowing fault. Like you would cancel a credit line in the real world um, and seize the assets of those users who had vouched for that credit line in the first place. So... Ironically, those types of arrangements are actually uh, less risky to the protocol, right? Because if we enforce a one-to-one -one requirement, then we'll always have collateral uh, to, to seize. Um, it's the, the things that would keep me up at night are when you have fixed income derivatives, where they're very low risk 99% of the time, but a smart contract pack gets them to zero, and maybe you only had 10%, 15% um, of the collateral value um, backed by our liquidation buffer system, right? Because you assume that the USDC locked up in one of these protocols was fine, but then it you know, went out the window. That's far more concerning. I think that's where insurance has to come into play. You know, other hedging mechanisms have to come into play, right? Like Y2K finance, I think is a good example of like the types yeah. of um infrastructure that'll need to exist for those arrangements to scale but um yeah there's there's a large attack surface <laughs> but I, I do think um at least taking a marketplace approach it is more robust uh for those types of events and a final question <laughs> for you uh yes. it's running a little over time here i'll let you go in a minute if i wanted to if i if how do I frame this? If I wanted to create a way where I could use real world treasuries as collateral, <laughs> do you think that would be possible within like two or three years? And how do you think it would be possible if it were? Yeah. So my understanding at the moment, having like spoken with folks working on this is it's primarily a, uh, it's a tax withholding issue at the moment. Like the people who are trying to tokenize treasuries, um, you have to incorporate it basically as a bond ETF. And that comes with weird restrictions just off the get-go, even if you do it in a favorable jurisdiction. 
then even if you get that off the ground, then the question becomes, you know, ERC 20s getting transferred about KYC, uh, right? Like a bit <laughs> could yeah. be a, a red flag, right? Um, I think somebody will crack it. I mean, the question will be whether interest rates are still appealing in two years. Um, you know, that's I still think whether they are or not, I think having treasuries on chain is like one of the ultimate uh wins for DeFi just because they're such like a they're so, they're like the bedrock of the global economy in in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. So being able to figure out how to get them on chain, I think is like I, I think it should be a goal uh for DeFi in the next like whatever five years. I could see it being like a fidelity type thing where maybe like some centralized entity ends up doing it and they like have the approval of regulators to like okay you can make like maybe you could do it'd be weird like the transfer thing is very tough right without kyc i don't think the government's gonna want that you could do like i don't think it would work but like some type of like you have a specific wallet with a soul bound like non-transferable treasury i don't know yeah that wouldn't i don't know it's not an easy answer uh but yeah, I think I think that should be like th that should be like the like one of the main goals, because then if you can do that, you can probably do most most real world assets. I think that's kind yeah, of the I think it's also something that could be led by um, weaker countries. Right. Like if yeah. we are going into a sovereign debt crisis, I, I think more desperate countries will be willing to like have any liquidity they can find, regardless of Uncle Sam, like comes knocking later, right? Um, so maybe we see like tokenized emerging soft, emerging market sovereign debt in the next two years. I guess El Salvador kind of came close. I think they, they, they didn't really do that, but you know, it showed a willingness at, at the lower, lower rating levels for that type of behavior. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your point, right? This is all kind of, inevitable it really just is you know is it two years five years or ten years like eventually our generation will be the ones making these regulatory decisions and yeah you know we'll have a totally different outlook on this type of stuff yeah i just don't want to be 80 when it happens you know yeah, i'd like it to right. happen a little sooner but <laughs> right. all right well this was great thanks so much for your time um if people want to follow you where can they find you um so i'm on twitter um chronically <laughs> Um, and it's just last name underscore first name. So um, we can put that in the show notes, I guess. I will. I put all, I'll put all your links. Twitter. I'll put links to uh, Fiat Dow's Twitter as well if people want to check that out. Uh, good luck. I, I I I really like your approach. I like having you on because I think you have good insights. So I'll happily have you on again whenever you want. Um, yeah. Have a good one, man. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nikki.